Esther chapter 2. Esther chapter 2. Verse 1. After these things, when the anger of King Ahasuerus had subsided, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. Then the king's attendants who served him said, Let beautiful young virgins be sought for the king, and let the king appoint overseers in all the provinces of his kingdom, that they may gather every beautiful young virgin to Susa, the capital, to the harem, into the custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the women, and let their cosmetics be given them. Then let the young lady who pleases the king be queen in place of Vashti. And the matter pleased the king, and he did accordingly. Now there was a Jew in Susa the capital, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, a Benjamite, who had been taken into exile from Jerusalem with the captives who had been exiled with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had exiled. And he was bringing up Hadassah, that is, Esther, his uncle's daughter, for she had neither father nor mother. Now the young lady was beautiful of form and face, and when her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So it came about, when the command and decree of the king were heard, and many young ladies were gathered to Susa the capital, into the custody of Haggai, that Esther was taken to the king's palace, into the custody of Haggai, who was in charge of the women. Now the young lady pleased him, and found favor with him, so he quickly provided her with her cosmetics and food, gave her seven choice maids from the king's palace, and transferred her and her maids to the best place in the harem. Esther did not make known her people or her kindred, for Mordecai had instructed her that she should not make them known. And every day Mordecai walked back and forth in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and how she fared. Now when the turn of each young lady came to go into King Ahasuerus, after the end of her twelve months, under the regulations for the women, for the days of their beautification were completed as follows, six months with oil of myrrh and six months with spices and the cosmetics for women. The young lady would go in to the king in this way. Anything that she desired was given her to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening she would go in, and in the morning she would return to the second harem, to the custody of Shashgaz, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the concubines. She would not again go in to the king unless the king delighted in her, and she was summoned by name. Now when the turn of Esther, the daughter of Abihel, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his daughter, came to go in to the king, she did not request anything except what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the women, advised. And Esther found favor in the eyes of all who saw her. So Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus to his royal palace in the tenth month, which is the month Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign. And the king loved Esther more than all the women, and she found favor and kindness with him more than all the virgins so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Then the king gave a great banquet, Esther's banquet, for all his princes and his servants. He also made a holiday for the 
provinces and gave gifts according to the king's bounty. And when the virgins were gathered together the second time, then Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Esther had not yet made known her kindred or her people, even as Mordecai had commanded, for Esther did what Mordecai told her as she had done when under his care. In those days, while Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthan and Teresh, two of the king's officials, from those who guarded the door, became angry and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. But the plot became known to Mordecai, and he told Queen Esther, and Esther informed the king in Mordecai's name. Now when the plot was investigated and found to be so, they were both hanged on a gallows. And it was written in the book of the Chronicles in the king's presence. The first part of the chapter, King Ahasuerus in verse 1, after these things it says, verse 1, after these things, that is, after Queen Vashti had been deposed, after she had disobeyed the request of the king and the king became irate towards her, his advisors, his officials, recommended that she be deposed, and that's what happened. After those things occurred, King Ahasuerus, after his anger had subsided, it says he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. He remembered these things, and not only did he remember it, but the implication is that he said something about it. We don't know what he said, but he said something about it so that his attendants, his officials, who served him in verse 2, they make this recommendation. The recommendation is here in verses 2 to 4. They recommend that beautiful young virgins be sought for the king. Go throughout the, the empire, throughout all the provinces. In chapter 1, verse 1, it says over 127 provinces, spanning from North Africa, northeastern Africa, all the way into uh, which is, that which is now modern western part of southern Asia. In that whole territory, uh, over 127 provinces, they sought for these women to come, these young virgins. And they were supposed to come to Susa, the capital, to the harem. As is the custom of the kings in those days, they had a harem where there were women there for them. And in this case, it says that this harem of the women was overseen by a one Haggai, the king's eunuch. A eunuch, is not, that's the, a term we don't use very much these days. A eunuch in those days was a man who had been castrated. He had his organ removed in order that he might do the king's business that regarded the women of the court, the women of the kingdom in relation to the king. So he had charge of these women and they suggest that they be put under the custody of Haggai and that their cosmetics be given to them. That is, Haggai knows what to do to prepare them with their beautification, so let this be done. Let the women come to him and let him oversee what should be done. Then they say in verse 4 that the young lady who pleases the king, let her be queen in place of Vashti. And it says in 4, the matter pleased the king, and he did accordingly. This was a good idea to the king, so he does so. He orders for this to occur. 
Now, up to this point, we don't hear anything of Esther and Mordecai. We just hear of the kingdom of Persia and King Ahasuerus and Vashti. Now, in verses 5 to 7, before they are actually major figures and major uh, people of influence in this book, and according to these events, we're told the background. Who are they? Verse 5, Now there was a Jew in Susa, the capital, whose name was Mordecai. It calls him a Jew. These days, when we use the word Jew, we're just speaking of anyone in the biblical period who comes from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, from that lineage. That's the way we often use the word today. However, in the Bible, there was a progression as to what this word meant. Firstly, the word was the word Hebrew. In Genesis 14, 13, Abraham is called Abram the Hebrew because of the language he spoke. He's called the Hebrew. And they were known and are still known in some ways as the Hebrew people. Those who are descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, as well as Jacob's 12 sons. The Hebrew people. Then the nation Israel is another common term. Israel to refer to not just the patriarch Jacob, who had a second name, Israel, but also Israel is a term used to describe the northern kingdom, the northern kingdom when the kingdoms, the one kingdom split into two kingdoms in the time of Rehoboam and Jeroboam. Rehoboam, the son of Solomon. In his time, they divided into two. So the word Israel is used for the northern kingdom, which took ten tribes. The term Israel sometimes in the Bible is used to refer to all or any of the tribes. Just in general, speaking of the 12 tribes, sometimes the Bible refers to them as Israel. These are just a few of the usages of the word Israel. There are more. Some, in one place, in Isaiah 49, the Messiah himself is called Israel. So there are different usages of this term. The term Jew, more precisely, comes from the term Judah. First, that was the name of the patriarch, the son of Jacob, in the book of Genesis. His name was Judah. And then the southern kingdom was known primarily as the kingdom of Judah. Because the northern kingdom, when it was exiled, it basically merged into and intermarried with the various other peoples that came to inhabit the northern kingdom when the Assyrian Empire controlled them and dominated them. They intermarried and they practiced idolatry. And there were some, however, who had a kind of aberrant form of the practice of the law of Moses. They held to the law of Moses, some among them, and they had an aberrant form of worship. This is the kind that Jesus encountered with the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4. Well, in this case, the word Jew is now used to refer to the people of the southern kingdom who more were able to keep their ethnicity intact. The ones of the southern kingdom who were exiled by the Babylonians, which is referred to here in verse 6 by Nebuchadnezzar, they, when they were deported and exiled from their nation in the southern part of the land of Canaan or the land of Israel, when they were deported by the Babylonians, 
then after the Babylonians, the Persians conquered them. And everyone there, everyone of that region was known as a Jew. Of that ethnicity, they're called a Jew. And this is the word that primarily is used in this book and uh, much in modern terminology. This is the word that is used, the word Jew. This is Mordecai, and he's called a Jew. We know here in this reference that it's not, not a negative use of the word Jew. It's a positive use of the word Jew. It's a referent. It's referring to his background. However, sometimes in the Bible, even in the book of Esther, when Haman and his wife and others use the term, they use it disparagingly. They use it in a negative sense. Well, here, this Mordecai was there in Susa, the capital. It doesn't tell us exactly when he got there, but it does say something about his ancestry, and it does say that he got there because, verse 6, they had been taken into exile from Jerusalem with the captives who had been exiled with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had exiled. Now, one thing first uh, on the, the name Mordecai. It's not quite evident from the English spelling of the name. However, his name comes from the Babylonian god Marduk, M-A-R-D-U-K. This shows that he was a resident of this area, and perhaps his parents were of this area for a while, that they gave him a local name. They gave him the, a Babylonian name, Marduk, or as it's translated here, going from the Babylonian language into the Hebrew language into English, it comes as Mordecai. And that's his name. This is evidence that they were there for a while. Then it gives his ancestry. There are a few ways to look at this ancestry. For one, one interpretation is that Mordecai himself was a baby when he was exiled, when he and his parents and others were exiled. If he were a baby, and let's just say he was one year old, then the exile that took place in the reign of King Jeconiah would have been in 598 B.C. 598 B.C. And then the, the beginning of this book, or the beginning of the reign of King Ahasuerus, would have been in 486 B.C. So, so we see that there is a span of at least 110 years, about 112 years. So one interpretation is to say that Mordecai was exiled as a baby and now he is a man who is about 110 years old. Now that's not impossible. It's not impossible that he would be that old. He's already a court official and then he's exalted and we don't know how, how long he remained in that, promo in that uh, promotion by the end of the book in chapters 9 and 10. How long he remained as an official as the right hand man of the king of Persia. That's one interpretation, that he himself was exiled. Because it says in verse 6, who had been taken into exile from Jerusalem. The date of Jeconiah's exile is 598 B.C. The second interpretation is to take his 
lineage here that says Jair, whom we don't know. There aren't others in the Bible that we can identify. However, it does say Shemei, the son of Kish, a Benjamite. Shemei is mentioned in 2 Samuel 16, 5. And 1 Kings 2, 8. He's mentioned a few times in the books of Samuel and Kings. And this one is identified as a Benjamite. So it may be that Shemei. And then it says the son of Kish. We also hear of the, the man Kish, who is the father uh, of Saul, King Saul. 1 Samuel chapter 9, verse 1, 1451, 1 Chronicles 8:33 and 9:39. There Kish is the father of King Saul. So in this way, it may be that Mordecai is a relative of King Saul. And in this way, it would also have to mean that in verse 6 we take who had been taken into exile to mean that among the Benjamites taken into exile, not specifying which one exactly, perhaps Jair, but it's not specifying exactly, that Mordecai now finds himself in Susa, the capital. Then the the third way to look at this is to think that um, actually Jair himself is the one that was taken into exile uh, into Babylon and Mordecai would have been his son, his immediate son, and the others are not the Shemei and the Kish of the Old Testament that we know. These are individuals that we don't know. I mention all this because some interpreters of the Bible take pains to say that this incident mentioned in the book of Esther is fabricated. It's got kernels of historical truth, but generally this incident, the whole tragedy and recovery from the the potential tragedy never occurred. It's just a legend and a, a story made up, a tale made up, by Jews to justify their race, to justify their religion, to justify their presence, and even to justify their supposed desire for blood, their bloodthirstiness. I don't take it that way at all. I take this to to be the Word of God and that there are plausible explanations for some of these difficulties we see in the biblical text. Now, verse 7. And he was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, his uncle's daughter, for she had neither father nor mother. And it describes in the rest of verse 7 that her father and her mother died. Mordecai took her as his own daughter. Mordecai here adopts her because her parents had died. She was Mordecai's cousin the daughter of Mordecai's uncle. Her name, Hadassah, in Hebrew means myrtle, after the myrtle tree. And her name, Esther, is likely a Babylonian name. Again, a Babylonian name, evidence that 
their family was there in the reign of the Babylonian Empire before the Persian Empire conquered the Babylonians. And this Babylonian name would be Ishtar, which is a goddess of the Babylonians. Uh, Ishtar, the goddess of the Babylonians, corresponds to the modern planet Venus, which uh, by the Romans and the Greeks and others was worshipped as a god. In the same way, the Babylonians worshipped the planet Venus. This word uh, in Babylonian, Ishtar, goes into Greek as aster and into English as star, as star. So one of the stars that that were uh, that was worshipped by the Babylonians and many other peoples around the world. So she has, just like Mordecai, a pagan name, a pagan name in a foreign land. Verse 8, verses 8 to 11, 8 to 11. Here we'll find that Esther is the one that finds favor in the eyes of Haggai. Haggai, the eunuch in charge of the virgins, likes her and treats her well. He gives her favor. Verse 8, So it came about when the command and decree of the king were heard, and many young ladies were gathered to Susa the capital into the custody of Haggai, that Esther was taken to the king's palace into the custody of Haggai, who was in charge of the women. Now the young lady pleased him, that is, pleased Haggai, and found favor with him. So he, Haggai, quickly provided her with her cosmetics and food, gave her seven choice maids from the king's palace, and transferred her and her maids to the best place in the harem. Esther finds favor in Haggai's presence. Haggai has charge of the women, therefore he has the ability to act quickly, provided her with cosmetics, whatever cosmetics were needed, whatever food was needed, food that was pleasing to her, food that would be good for health, good for the body, and seven choice maids to help her, to care for her. And they also transferred her and her maids to the best place in the harem. She had the best attention, the best residence there in the harem. All of this we see here in this case too. It's God moving in the heart of a pagan man in order to treat Esther favorably. We'll speak more of this in a few minutes. Verse 10. Verse 10. Esther did not make known her people or her kindred, for Mordecai had instructed her that she should not make them known. Mordecai told her that she should not make known her people or her kindred. Don't make known who she is, that she's a Jew, that she worships the God of heaven. Don't make known any of these things. Verse 20 also says the same. Esther had not yet made known her kindred or her people, even as Mordecai had commanded her, for Esther did what Mordecai told her as she had done when under his care. We see here that Esther is very grateful to Mordecai. She's grateful to him and obedient to him because he cared for her. He brought her up. He treated her well when her own parents died. She has a proper attitude towards Mordecai. Yes, Mordecai is a relative, but 
she especially has a submissive attitude towards him and a grateful attitude. She obeys him. She does whatever he tells her. Now, this problem, it's, it's implicit here. Esther did not make known her people. Esther had not yet made known her kindred or her people. This is a common problem for the Jewish people. It's a problem here in the book of Esther. It's also a problem throughout history. It's even a problem in the United States of America. Among all the religions in the United States, religions and races, if you add up hate-motivated criminal activity against a certain religion and race, if you add up the percentages, the Jewish people are on the top of the list. There is still great animosity against Jewish people. Mordecai knew this. Esther heard this from Mordecai. Therefore, Esther suppresses her identity, suppresses who she is so that they may live. It's a means of self-defense. It's a means of survival to be able to live in that foreign and pagan circumstance. Verse 11. And every day Mordecai walked back and forth in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and how she fared. Here again we see the great concern that Mordecai has for Esther. Esther is now taken away from him. She is no longer under his care, but he is still concerned for her welfare. He wants to know how she's doing. Likely, He's praying for her. He's thinking of her constantly. He wants to know that she's okay. And he again is walking back and forth in front of the court of the harem because he was an official. We're not told what kind of official capacity he had, yet he had access to the gate of the king. He had access to the court. He talked to officials. He heard news. He was there with all the buzz and activity of the, of the king and the palace. Verses 12 to 15. 12 to 15. Now we'll see how Esther is prepared and Esther succeeds in finding favor. Further, furthermore, more than with Haggai. Verse 12. Now, when the turn of each young lady came to go into the, to King Ahasuerus, after the end of her twelve months under the regulations for the women, for the days of their beautification were completed as follows, six months with oil of myrrh and six months with spices and the cosmetics for women. A twelve-year period had to transpire for them to beautify themselves, six months with oil and six months with spices and cosmetics, six months each. And the process is explained. Verse 13, The young lady would go in to the king in this way. Anything she desired was given her to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening she would go in, and in the morning she would return to the second harem. And then when returning to the second harem, the woman would be under the care of another eunuch. And in this case, his name is Shashgaz, who was in charge of the concubines. The virgins were in the first harem. Then whenever the virgins went into the king to be with him, 
then the next morning they would become a concubine and go into the second harem and have a different eunuch in charge of them. Verse 14, she would not again go in to the king unless the king delighted in her and she was summoned by name. All of these women going from the first harem to the second harem would not see the king again unless the king called that woman by name. They would not come again. You can imagine that there were many, many women like this. So the chances, humanly speaking, the chances of Esther being chosen and finding favor are very slim. This has to be because of divine providence that she was chosen. Verse 15. Now when the turn of Esther, the daughter of Abihel, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his daughter, came to go in to the king, she did not request anything except what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the women, advised. And Esther found favor in the eyes of all who saw her. Esther takes the advice of Haggai. Haggai is in charge of the first harem. He knows. He knows what the situation is there. He knows what will please the king, and he gives advice to her. She listens to the advice. She wants to do the best, the best for herself and the best for her situation. She obeyed him. She took his advice. And it says in 15, she found favor in the eyes of all who saw her. Found favor in the eyes of all who saw her. This expression is implicitly mentioning how it is God who produces in the eyes and hearts and minds of people a favorable attitude towards Esther. It's God who is doing this. Verse 16. 16 to 18. We conclude here with Esther being queen. So Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus to his royal palace in the tenth month, which is in the month Tebeth in the seventh year of his reign. She, she is taken to King Ahasuerus. And the date is given. It says here, in the seventh year of his reign. The book of Esther started with this great banquet that he conducted for his officials, which was in the third year of his reign. The third year of Ahasuerus, or Xerxes, would be 482 B.C., and here the seventh year of his reign would be 478 B.C., a few years later. Now, we may inquire why this gap of time, about four years between the time that Vashti was demoted and now Esther is promoted to queen. Most likely, it's because that banquet in chapter 1 the banquet of wine for his officials was in order for him to show off his wealth and to show off his strength and his preparation to engage the Greeks in warfare. He wanted to go on a Persian expedition to Greece to expand the Persian Empire. And according to the chronology outside the Bible, this would have taken place in 480 B.C., 480 B.C. That means that in 482 he was preparing. He goes in 480 B.C. 
However, he was defeated by the Greeks, pushed back. And then in 478 BC, when he's back in Susa, the capital, he thinks of restoring and, and finding a queen to replace Vashti. So that's why we have this gap between 482 to 478 BC. Most likely something like this occurred. Otherwise, he would have had, uh, first and foremost on his mind, the need to replace Vashti. Verse 17. And the king loved Esther more than all the women, and she found favor and kindness with him more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Here too, for the queen, or for the king to love Esther more than all the women, to find favor and kindness with him more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head. For this to happen, inevitably, indisputably, it had to have happened because of the superintendence of God. God had to be the one working in this situation and in the heart of the king. Proverbs 21.1 The king's heart is like channels of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wishes. And even Proverbs 16.33 speaks of God's superintendence of even the most haphazard of circumstances. It says in 16.33 The lot is cast into the lap but its every decision is from the Lord. The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. That which humans do in order to make decisions, casting lots, it's haphazard to us. We don't control the outcome, but it says in 1633, but its every decision is from the Lord. Now, if 21.1, Proverbs 21.1 and 1633 make those assertions, there can be no doubt that verse 17 happened. She found favor with the king and with Haggai and with all who saw her because God caused it to happen. Because God was involved. Now verse 18. Then the king gave a great banquet, Esther's banquet. He names it Esther's banquet. For all his princes and his servants, he also made a holiday for the provinces and gave gifts according to the king's bounty. He's excited, he's thrilled to have Esther as queen. He calls for his princes, his servants, that means all of the people who serve the king, his officials, and even lower uh, uh, servants. He also made a holiday, a special day for this, throughout all the provinces, throughout the whole empire. Remember, the whole empire heard of the demoted Vashti, in chapter 1. Now the whole empire hears of the promoted Esther. And according to the king's bounty, he gives gifts to everyone. Doesn't tell us what he gave, but he, it says he gave gifts so that everybody else might celebrate with him. Esther becomes queen. Now, before the next chapter starts, we have this incident that occurs in verses 19 to 23. Mordecai hears of an assassination plot. He informs Esther 
Esther informs the king in Mordecai's name. The plot is investigated, and it's true. There were two men seeking to assassinate the king, so they are executed. Verse 19. And when the virgins were gathered together the second time, then Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Here in verse 19, when the virgins were gathered together the second time. Most likely this was another collection, another gathering of virgins for the king. Doesn't tell us how much time passed. Likely some time passed before this was done because he has, is just now finishing the celebration of marriage to Queen Esther. So some time had passed. And having had some time pass, a lot of things are happening, and the king and Esther know each other more. And so he has some time, I believe, to have greater confidence in Esther. It says there, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. He's sitting at the king's gate, not as an enemy, not as a stranger, not as a beggar, likely that that would not be happening right there. He's sitting at the king's gate because he is an official. Likely he's a, a guard or some kind of official there of the king in order to help the king with his daily duties. Verse 20, Esther had not yet made known her kindred or her people, even as Mordecai had commanded her. For Esther did what Mordecai told her as she had done when under his care. She does whatever Mordecai tells her. She's obedient. And this is told us in verse 20 because Mordecai is going to tell her something. She's going to have confidence in Mordecai's information. She trusts him. She knows that he is a trustworthy man. That's why this is told to us. She's humble. She's obedient. She trusts Mordecai. So verse 21, In those days while Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthan and Teresh, two of the king's officials from those who guarded the door, became angry and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. There, these two men are incensed at the king, so they want to assassinate the king. They want to lay hands on him. Notice their names are given. You've noticed that so far through chapters 1 and 2, Various names of officials are given here. I think we can learn a few things from this. One, this was written by an eyewitness. This was written by somebody who knew the events. These kinds of names would not just be thrown in here haphazardly. Notice that none of these are Greek and Roman names. These are Persian and Aramaic names. Persian and Aramaic names, and Babylonian in reference to uh, Vashti, Mordecai, and Esther. These are primarily these names that would be obvious, common names, names that would occur in the Persian Empire, in the Babylonian Empire. And this author, the writer, the God-inspired, Holy Spirit-inspired prophet who writes this book, he knows this. He's got the correct information. That's, that's one. To note that we have an eyewitness who is telling us about the actual events. 
Now, this should also help us to have confidence in what we read. When the Bible lists these kinds of things, the year of, of a king's reign, what incidents happened, who the people were, names given, specific details given, these are things that are given in order to buttress our faith, to enlarge our faith, so that we understand we're reading about things that actually occurred in time and space, in our world. And just as God is intertwined and working in all of the in, uh, in, uh, in uh, specific details of this world, He's also working in our life with all of the specific details of our world. It said in verse 22, But the plot became known to Mordecai, and he told Queen Esther, and Esther informed the king in Mordecai's name. She informs the king in Mordecai's name because she trusts Mordecai's information and she wants Mordecai to be complimented and to be rewarded for doing so. Verse 23. Now when the plot was investigated and found to be so, they were both hanged on the gallows and it was written in the book of the Chronicles in the king's presence. Here, the, the Persians, though they are wicked and pagan, they have, in a sense, some understanding of retribution or just retribution. Since the assassins wanted to assassinate the king, they deserve to be executed. This happens in the book of Esther. It happens on a grander scale throughout the empire. The enemies of the Jews wanted to annihilate all the Jews. We learn later when a second decree is issued, when the enemies attacked the Jews, the Jews had the permission to defend themselves and the help of the Persian Empire, the Persian officials, to defend themselves against their enemies. Thereby, they could kill their enemies, which they did. They killed many of them. So, there is a sense of justice that we see here in the book. And now, not only that, but also in verse 23, a note is mentioned. It was written in the book of the Chronicles in the king's presence. Now, this book of the Chronicles is also mentioned in verse, uh, chapter 6, verse 1. Chapter 6, verse 1. During that night, the king could not sleep, so he gave an order to bring the book of records, the Chronicles, and they were read before the king. Then it says that because he couldn't sleep and they read these chronicles to him, he learned that Mordecai had saved his life. And he asked, what has been done for Mordecai? Nothing was done. So he has something done for Mordecai to be honored and exalted. And then at the end of the book, we have in chapter 10, verse 2, all the accomplishments of his authority and strength and the full account of the greatness of Mordecai to which the king advanced him, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Medea and Persia? The Persians, just like the various empires of the world, they kept a book of records, a book of chronicles, which detailed the events of the kingdom. This is what happens 
with this assassination attempt. And it's not written there to no end. It was written there so that it might be used providentially by God's providence to control what happens later in the lives of Esther, Mordecai, and the Jews, as well as the enemies of the Jews and all the rest of the people.